So when we read the same book, even if we read from very different perspectives and life experiences, for a brief time, our minds move along broadly similar tracks. And as a result, for a very short time, we, we look at the world roughly from the same perspective. And that gives us common ground. Anne Morgan is a UK-based author, editor and literary activist who quite literally read the world. We caught up with her on the Next Page podcast to explore how her journey with books has evolved since her last visit to the UN Library and Archives. Fiction is perhaps an unusual topic for our podcast dedicated to advancing the conversation on multilateralism. But in this episode, we consider how reading the world's literature can help us develop the sort of skills and cross-cultural understanding that are necessary for diplomacy and our work at the UN. Anne speaks about the importance of translation and multilingualism. She hands us some keys to explore the unknown by observing, reserving judgment, and being open to the richness of human experience. Underlying stories from around the world is the sense of our common humanity, and we discuss the power of stories to connect us. Enjoy. So, Anne Morgan... Welcome to the podcast. I should really say welcome back because you, you've you already been to the Library and Archives, I think not that long ago, really, to talk about one of your books because about a decade ago in 2012, you undertook an extraordinary adventure that I, am, I imagine has really changed the way you see the world. And we're really glad to have you back with us to hear more about your work since then. So in this episode... Uh, we hope you'll maybe challenge us and share a bit more about the wisdom that reading can lead to and why this might be important for diplomacy and for multilateralism. But to start, perhaps please introduce yourself to our listeners and recap a little about reading the world and what the original project meant to you and how this idea came about. Yes. um, Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Amy. Um, So I'm Anne Morgan. I'm an author based in the UK uh, on the South Coast. And uh, my first book, Reading the World, came out of this project I did uh, 10 years ago to try and read a book from every country in the world in a year, which came about from uh, a realisation that my reading up until that point had been incredibly Anglo-centric. Pretty much everything on my bookshelves was written originally in English, and I really had very little to do with translations. When I realised this, it seemed rather crazy. Why would I cut myself off from so many of the world's amazing stories? Um, So with 2012 set to be a very international year for the UK, with the Olympics coming and the Queen's Jubilee, it seemed like the perfect time to see if I could go out and try and meet the world through books. So that's what I set myself the challenge of doing, spending that year trying to see if I could source, read and review a book from every country in the world. And in order to do that, I set up a blog called theyearofreadingtheworld.com to record the quest, but also to appeal for help because I realised I knew very little about much of the world's literature. And so I needed some advice. And I also didn't know if I'd be able to get, get texts from every country in the world in translation. So that was my starting point. And it actually turned out to be an extraordinary uh, adventure that became much bigger than me, really, and took over my life in a way and has become, in the 10 years since, a lifelong quest, uh, a lifelong mission, really, to uh, champion uh, the circulation of the world's stories and, and underrepresented voices in English 
publishing because the English language is actually an extraordinary tool. Being uh, the world's most published language and the language that when you count second language speakers is by far and away the most spoken language in the world. It's a, a real gateway for the world's literature. Work that is published in English, either written originally or translated, uh, not only has a huge global reach, but has much bigger chance of being translated into other languages. So it's really the sort of conduit for world literature, whatever we might take that term to mean. So that's really that's really uh, where it started. And, and I should say that it became a huge collaborative thing. People all over the planet got involved. One of the things that was so powerful about it was um, how many people in very many different places got involved and helped me, not simply making recommendations, but going to some extraordinary lengths to help me achieve this goal. I hope you're going to share a few examples of that later on. But um, uh, tell us first, I mean, there are, you've mentioned a little about the challenges that you faced uh, initially, but one of them, I imagine, was also deciding what constitutes uh, a country. You were inspired by the Olympic Games held in London, but I think there it was about 205 countries that were represented at the Games. That's quite a few more than we're used to at the UN. So how exactly did you settle on what you would count as a country? Well, absolutely. As many, many listeners to this podcast will know, the question of what makes a country is a lot more complicated than it might sound on the surface. And a lot of people have different views on that. And how many countries the world consists of depends on your politics and where you live and, and maybe what you believe. I ended up using the UN list as a, as a main structure, seeing it as perhaps the most sort of international, internationally agreed list that we have. Um, so obviously there were 193 UN members at the time, but there were also two UN recognized, well, they were, there was one UN recognized state at the start of my quest, the Holy See or Vatican City. And then there was one UN recognized entity, which during that year became a state, which was Palestine. So that gave me 195. Now, I also, partly because I, I'm a slightly sort of um, person who likes to ask questions and challenge things, I also added Taiwan to the list because it used to be a UN member. But as the year went on, I became conscious that there were huge numbers of territories and nations, certainly as far as many groups of people were concerned, that weren't represented on this list. And so in order to recognise that, I added one extra country that people chose for me, um, a nation that wasn't represented on that list, and people voted, and that ended up being Kurdistan. So in the end, I had 197 countries to read a book from in a year. But there are also territories, areas, regions, islands, and indigenous populations that have different stories, histories, cultures, identities. I was wondering in the 10 years that have, uh, have passed, have you expanded your list to, to cover stories that would come from other areas too? Well, Actually, many of the stories that I chose during the original quest weren't necessarily the obvious choice. So sometimes some of the stories that I read were deliberately from communities that were perhaps somewhat marginalised in their host nations or that were controversial groups, um, because it wasn't really for me about finding stories that represented the countries. I don't think that's a useful idea, really. I, I think, um, you know, 
we need many stories. And as anyone will know, a, a nation consists of very many stories. And so the idea that one book could stand for a whole country, I think, is was very problematic. So it was never really about that. It was about accessing voices, seeing what was out there. But in the years that have followed, I have continued to explore literatures from different communities. Um, the list on the blog remains the original 197, but uh, those, country, they, those communities are listed sort of, their texts that I've read are listed under those countries that they are nominally part of in terms of that original list. But yes, you're right, it's a very problematic thing. I remember thinking about this recently when I was reviewing a book from Martinique and listing it under France and how ridiculous that was, you know, uh, how how ridiculous it felt. Um, but I think that, that you come to understand when you consider these issues that politics is a very messy thing. Um, and when I started the project, I wanted it to be apolitical, but I realised, of course, that's a very naive thing because everything we do is political. It's it's impossible not to be political. By making any kind of choice like that, you are you know, expressing a political stance. And so that was, it, there is a great deal of compromise and a great deal of difficulty in that, but that's part of what makes the project interesting, I think, and what continues to challenge me and, and, and keep me interested in it. Exactly. And you, you've also talked about translation. And of course, you need to, you wish to read in English and finding these English language versions of books you chose um, can't have been easy. Perhaps you could give us an example of the kind of cooperation you talked about, about reaching out through your blog to people across the world. Uh, one was to choose the books, but also I think you also had stories of translation for books that just didn't exist in English. That's right. And so at the time of my quest, there were around 11 UN recognized nations that had no commercially available literature in English translation. And so getting hold of texts from those countries was a, a real challenge and involved all sorts of things. The most extraordinary example came in the form of a group of volunteers who I, I found through social media. I was trying to get a book translated into English from uh, Sao Tome and Principe, which has Portuguese as an official language. And I had naively assumed that Portuguese and French-speaking African nations would be relatively easy to get hold of translated literature from because those, those languages are so widely spoken. But actually, it's, it's very much not the case in, in a lot of cases. And Sao and Principe, I had tried so much. I had uh, contacted anyone I could find online who seemed to have some association with the country, uh, pestering all sorts of people, doctors, charities working there, students doing gap years. And everyone came back with the same answer, which they didn't, which was that they didn't know of anything that was in English that I could read. And so I put out this call on social media, thinking that probably no one would be prepared to help. But within a week, I had more people volunteering to help translate than I could involve in the project. And um, it was a real range of people, everyone from someone I went to school with who studied Portuguese at university to a woman called Margaret Jewel Costa, who translates Nobel Prize winners as one of the world's leading Portuguese and Spanish language translators. And um, so I found this collection of short stories by a writer called Olinda Beja, who was born in Saotemi and Principe, and I bought enough copies and sent one to each of these nine volunteers and divided it up. And they each 
within six weeks returned their translations. So I had this entire collection of short stories to read. And it was incredibly humbling to to experience that kind of generosity. Um, and, and it really has, it continues to give me faith in uh, the generosity of, of strangers and the, the power of stories to connect us and to inspire wonderful things. It's an incredible story. So, of course, multilingualism is uh, a very important aspect of the work at the at the UN and in conferencing at the UN. And we have six official languages, as you know, Arabic, Spanish, French, Chinese, English and Russian. How much easier do you think it would be to read your list of books from around the world if we all spoke, for example, one or two of these languages in addition to our mother tongue? And... Mm. You've spoken already quite a bit about translation, but what really is the importance of translation for you now and and the importance of multilingualism? Well, I, I think it would have been a lot easier. In fact, initially, when I started the project, I wondered if I might use my other languages because I speak French and German. Not particularly well, I have to say. In the UK, you don't get a great deal of opportunity to practice and so I'm rather rusty but um, I had wondered if I might read in those languages as well until a translator said to me shortly before I started the project no don't do that because it makes it about you rather than can one person in the UK read the world you know so stick to the language that most people in the UK speak and actually I'm really glad she said that because had I read in French many of those African nations that I struggled to get literature from would have not have been a problem. And it was by staying in English that I became aware of this real disparity. I mean, particularly with French, it's quite glaring because French is the language that is most translated into English. Every year in the UK, more than 100 books are translated from French into English. But the vast majority of those books come from France or Switzerland or maybe French-speaking Canada countries with strong publishing networks and lots of advocates who go to the international book fairs and argue for their books and get them international deals. And French-speaking African nations are really underrepresented and left behind in that. So I'm glad that I stuck to English, but translation is is such an important thing um, in terms of bringing stories from other nations into different languages and enabling us to appreciate perspectives from elsewhere and it's such a skilled craft as well because anyone who speaks more than one language will know that words don't map neatly onto one another and concepts don't the way that we think I I found when I was doing German as a teenager and my German was quite good I was good enough to be able to go and do some work experience at a newspaper in Germany and I found that my personality in German was slightly different. My sense of humour was slightly different. The role I would take in social situations was slightly different. And having access to that that different way of looking at things and realising that certain assumptions that seem universal in one language perhaps don't come across in the same way in a different language is so important. And translators, for those of us who don't speak, Uh, more than one language and in fact for everyone because no one speaks every language enable us to get as close as possible to the way the world looks different through different eyes. Quite. Penguin Publishing House um, described your book Reading the World as one that explores the vital questions of our time and how 
reading across borders might just help us answer them. So I was thinking about this statement and, and, and thinking about the recent 75th anniversary of the UN and the report from the Secretary General Antonio Guterres, where he sounded a wake-up call in the face of the problems, saying really that cooperation and solidarity within societies and between nations are the only solutions. So I was wondering about your reading and about global issues and whether you have seen these sort of issues arising in the stories and narratives and how you really think that literature can help us explore these vital questions from different perspectives. Do you have Mm. some examples to share? Oh, well, yes. I mean, a huge number of the books I read featured issues that we might consider to be issues that the UN might be involved with or that big international organisations play a role in wars, uh, disaster relief, all kinds of things that um, we have to work together as a world to confront. And a a number of the books, as I say, were were very interesting on this. I have to say they weren't, were often not very complimentary about the role that big international organisations play in these issues. Um, So some examples that come to mind, Marie-Thérèse Toyi, is a Burundian writer. She self-published a book called Weep Not Refugee, which she sent to me, and it draws on her own experience and the experiences of friends and family who were held in refugee camps um, following the uh, genocide in Burundi. And she witnessed some of the killing herself. And it presents a very sort of uh, angry picture, actually, in terms of how many of those people felt uh, they were treated and um, the experience on the ground versus how it may look from outside. And I found this as well when I was reading often in terms of stories connected to the British Empire. I mean, it feels very, very uncomfortable often to see an aspect of your identity or your history or something that you're connected to presented from the outside in a story that may not have been written with you in mind as a reader. It's almost like hearing yourself spoken about by someone who thinks you're not in the room. But what's valuable, I think, about those things, and for me, was it was a huge eye-opener. It encouraged me to do a great deal of thinking around those issues, to realise how partial the narratives that I had grown up with had been about that history, and to do a lot of research and adjustment of my own understanding. And it also opened up to me the emotional reality of what it's like to live in the heart of these situations, which I think is so important for anyone who's working on on these issues to hold, to try to hold in mind. Of course, you have to take the big perspective. You have to look at the issues from multiple angles. But to enter into the reality of what it feels like to experience some of these things and to get as close as you can to a first-hand experience of that, which is what fiction enables us to do. It enables us to enter into the emotional reality of the life of someone who may have experiences that are far outside ours, far beyond our competence, our knowledge, um, is is hugely valuable. But it can be challenging, and and it can sometimes lead to feelings of defensiveness or you know wanting to argue. And sometimes those things are justified. But there is also value, I think, in trying to step back from that a bit and 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 allow the emotion to to have its say as well. And of course, one thing that really affects us now in, in, in the world is technology. 
And in your TED Talks, you talk about technology quite a lot and point out, for example, that without social media, as you've mentioned, your project of reading around the world uh, would have been very difficult, if not impossible. How do you view the way technology around communication has evolved? Yes, it is interesting because 30 years ago, it certainly wouldn't have been possible to read the world in a year in the way I did without the internet. It would have been a lifelong endeavor, writing letters to universities and bookshops and uh, experts all over the planet. And, uh, you know, I can imagine that I I would have become a real martyr to it for for decades. Um, But I'm not sure, actually, whether reading the world would be possible in the same way for an unknown individual like me now um, as I was then, Um, because the Internet has changed dramatically in the 10 years since my quest back then. There was an extraordinary freedom and access to people all around the world. And it was possible for someone to start a blog and it to become very well known. That still does happen occasionally. But actually, in the 10 years that have uh, elapsed, algorithms have become very much more sophisticated. um, So that when we search online now, what we see is not really a, a representation of what is out there relating to a particular topic, but really rather what we're most likely to be interested in, a reflection almost of the inside of our own head. And we don't see the gaps. We don't see what isn't there. We just see what the algorithm judges through long study of our habits to be most relevant to us. Uh, And that means that rather than having a sort of broad spread of opinion and access to very different sources of information, as I did when I searched and often found very tangentially related things that became useful to the quest but actually were really nothing to do with the search term I'd put in that really doesn't happen now instead you see things that are connected to your interests to your political viewpoint to your stance and of course there's a great deal of value in that and there's a great deal of value for big companies in that because it is presents us with things we're most likely to be interested in that we might buy and all those things but um the sad thing about that is that uh, we don't we don't see what we don't see, as I mentioned, but also that access uh, between interest groups is is cut down, and we're sort of siloed into bubbles uh, that relate to our interest or our particular demographic. And so I think that is that is something that concerns me, and something that makes me believe that reading internationally is more important than ever because it is about disrupting those algorithms mentally. Our brains are a bit like Google in some senses in that we learn habits of thought. We learn what we tend to think about things and we follow those patterns over and over again. And when you read books that are written from markedly different perspectives that challenge you and often make you quite uncomfortable or um, present you with viewpoints that you may vehemently disagree with, but ask you to enter into the reality of that, um, it disrupts those patterns and it obliges you to be more elastic in your thinking and more um, open to shifting and changing your perspective a little. Um, and so I think books uh, are actually a real, a real source of strength and a real, really useful tool in combating that sort of algorithmic uh, petrification that many of us go through. So let's stay a while with this disruption um, and talk about how we can perhaps move from this incomprehension to 
understanding because, of course, it's also very relevant to our library and archives here in Geneva, which predates the UN as it was founded at the time of the League of Nations. And from that time, we have a mission that is just as relevant today, which is to serve both as a center of research, but also as an instrument for international understanding. So your journey has led you to many places and, and ideas, and we can only imagine all that you've learned from that. But one of the things you seem to have have developed from this insatiable desire to read is to share this openness and curiosity with others and, and help disrupt and challenge um, perspectives. So we, we also know that you hold workshops on incomprehension. So let's talk a little bit about this. How do you see that reading so widely and across cultures and facing that incomprehension can be useful for diplomacy and for multilateralism? Yeah, so when I started my quest, I was really quite intimidated by many things, some of the challenges we've mentioned, but perhaps the deepest worry was wondering whether I would be up to the task, whether I had the skills to read books from all around the world, because I had been trained to read uh, by um, understanding context, understanding biography, uh, the history behind words and and the books that um, were written in certain times and places, the social history, the the experiences of the writer, huge numbers of footnotes and journal articles and critical texts um, that I would read around each primary text that I studied at university. And suddenly I realised that, of course, that wasn't going to be possible when I was reading books from different countries. It's so quickly. I had 1.87 days to find, read and uh, blog about each book that I covered that year. And so there wasn't any time to do any secondary reading. And so it seemed to me that the only way to approach this was to embrace not knowing incomprehension, the fact that there were going to be many things that I didn't understand, many references that would go over my head, many jokes that I wouldn't get, that there might be times when I felt completely at sea. Um, But I had to see if I could still nevertheless have a meaningful interaction with these books as a result. And I think that this has actually, this has led me to develop this incomprehension workshop, which turns on its head uh, some of the ways we were taught to read and which I think you can expand to reading all kinds of situations, whether that's reading people or reading dynamics in a room, which, of course, diplomats have to do all the time. So for me, the Incomprehension Workshop works by uh, taking an extract of text. Now, at school, many of us will have been given an exercise like this, where you're, you're given an extract from a book and you're asked questions about it. What does this word mean? Rewrite this sentence, in other words, explain what's going on here. And of course, those exercises teach a lot of useful skills, but they carry unhelpful implications, which are that there is one ideal way to read a situation or read a text, and that if you can't explain everything in a book, you're failing. Now, I don't think that's helpful when it comes to encountering stories from very different traditions, uh, because actually no one can be an expert in all of world literature. Even someone who is a polyglot and speaks speaks multiple languages and is an expert in numerous literatures can't know everything about all the world's stories. It's just too vast. And similarly, none of us can be experts in all people or all cultures, no matter how well-traveled or how um, well-studied we might be. 
And so what I ask people to do in my incomprehension workshop is to look at an extract of text from a book that is likely to be outside the comfort zone of the average English language speaker. And instead of answering questions, to ask questions about it and to explore what it is that trips them up or that makes them feel uncomfortable. Because not knowing is often seen as shameful in, in many settings, um, many of us get quite good at hiding it and we hide it even from ourselves sometimes. So instead of admitting that we don't understand something, we'll say, this is bad, there's a problem here, or, oh, this isn't for me. Or instead we'll rush to plug the gap with something that feels like it might fit, that we know that's within our circle of experience. Um, you often see people comparing places, you know, this is the Paris of the East or um, this is, you know, the, the uh, Johannesburg of the North or whatever. And those comparisons are really misleading often because actually they imply an equivalency which can lead you to expect things that aren't accurate. That place or that concept works in a very different way and it can be very unhelpful to impose this alien framework on something. But it's a very human tendency to rush in and fill those gaps. So what I try and do in these workshops is to encourage people to identify where those gaps are and rather than hurrying to fill them, notice them, ask questions about them and explore what those gaps might tell us about our own conditioning, our own biases, our own position and hold questions in your mind, understanding that perhaps those questions will be answered further down the line in the text or that you may answer them by doing some further research of your own, or perhaps you may not ever answer them. Not everything can be Googled. Um, not everything can be found the answer to, and even a wonderful library like the UN's. Um, and, and that is okay. Actually, perhaps not knowing is sometimes something that we can sit with and, and be comfortable with and be part of human interaction, be part of sharing stories. So it's, it's recalibrating that relationship with not knowing and I think when it comes to diplomacy and, and relating uh, cross-culturally and multilateralism many of those principles can be useful too of course this isn't to um, do away with or, or uh, criticize at all any kind of expertise expertise is, is valuable and reveals hugely useful things and, and many people have have expertise that is greatly, greatly useful. Um, but alongside that, no one can be an expert in everything. And so when you find yourself in a situation where perhaps you aren't aware of all the nuances of the situation, having that ability to step back and to ask questions and to sit with something rather than rushing to, to make sense of it, I think could be very valuable. Well, of course, the UN library is perhaps the largest library on multilateralism, but we'd be hard-pressed to find many novels in its stacks. So let's, let's try this out a bit. Would you perhaps dive a bit into some literature and bring up an example of how you embrace the unknown and how we can yeah. make this shift? Yeah, so uh, one of the text that I often feature an extract from in the Incomprehension Workshop is a novel called The First Wife by Paulina Ciziani, who was the first Mozambican woman to have a book published, and it's translated into English by David Brookshaw. And this is an amazing book. It's the story of a woman who discovers that her husband of 20 years has been maintaining four other families. 
and it has been in a sort of polygamous arrangement with these other women that she knew nothing about. Uh, and it brings together all sorts of things. It brings together the clash between the traditional culture in the north of Mozambique with the colonial Christian influences. Um, it brings together the patri patriarchal influences with the women's quest for their own identity, their own survival. Um, and we see this woman going through all kinds of challenges and all kinds of thought processes, some of which might feel very uh, relatable to women everywhere, but some of which are very specific to that place or to that person. And many of these, many of these responses are things that in the moment we can't necessarily know how culturally specific they are or how specific they are to that individual character. We don't necessarily know whether her laughing about something or, or being uh, particularly vehement about something is a function of her own identity, her own individual character, or whether it tells us more about the world at large. Of course, someone who knows that culture well would be able to unpick those things. But in the session, we look at a, a section where she goes and she asks various women and men what they think she should do about this situation. And she gets all sorts of strange answers and some ridicule, some sympathy, some quite extraordinary statements about uh, the relationships between women and men. And it's very hard as a reader reading from outside that culture to be able to unpick that. So what we have to do instead is be aware of the things that feel, um, make us uneasy or that, that throw up questions for us and try and sit with those as the book continues and in fact the book works its way to a wonderful resolution where the women band together and sort of leave the man out of it he, he gets disregarded a little bit and pushed to one side and they form this sort of um sisterhood which celebrates femininity as an incredibly powerful response to to this situation and an expression of a kind of embodied sensual feminism which Again, it was something that certainly for me was was very much not within my orbit uh, and was really um, joyful to to witness unfolding. But it required a certain amount of, of ability to suspend judgment for much of that text in order to reach that resolution and to see that at work. So that's that's one example. I do find that there's a really deep sense of underlying values in the way you write your blog and then these, the list of the stories, and especially, of course, about our common humanity. The UN values and behaviors, uh, it's a, a new framework that has come out, um, really focuses on inclusion and integrity and humility and humanity. And I see that throughout the choice of books in your in your list, the way it's put together, the blog, this whole exploration of of fiction and of of human experiences and these stories. Why do you think storytelling matters, and how do you think it helps connect us ultimately? I think there are lots of reasons why it matters. Um, I, I think that one of the most powerful insights that I I got during my quest and have continued to be struck by since is the fact that storytelling storytelling is a universal human impulse we all do it and we all get excited by it we all love to take part in it in one way or another uh, and that is is an extraordinary thing people are so proud when they see their stories being celebrated and uh, and the the eagerness that i 
see to this day in the messages that I receive almost every day from someone somewhere in the world contacting me to tell me about a book or their experience of reading a story or something that relates to something I've said on the blog um, is extraordinary. I think one of the reasons that they're so powerful is that they make us all citizens of the same imaginary landscape. So when we read the same book, even if we read from very different perspectives and life experiences, for a brief time, our minds move along broadly similar tracks. And as a result, for a very short time, we we look at the world roughly from the same perspective. And that gives us common ground. I mean, I've had conversations about books with all kinds of people, everyone from a US Mormon woman to a schoolboy in Afghanistan. Um, And what has made it possible to relate to those people is a shared experience of a story, which despite the many things that we have in difference that are that make us different and the many things we may disagree on in other senses, um, we are able to share share a response to those things, to that story. And that, I think, is is incredibly powerful. It's very beautiful. So, Anne, final thoughts you'd like to conclude with. What's your hope for our listeners? We face so many challenges as, um, as a species, and people listening to this podcast will be far more expert in those than I. But I think storytelling can be a huge tool to bring us together. It gives me enormous hope in the face of all that all that challenge because despite all our difference and difficulty, we can be brought together by the shared love of narrative, of story. And I think if it's harnessed in the right way, that is an incredibly powerful thing and something that uh, can be a source of inspiration uh, and possibility for generations to come. Well, Anne Morgan, you've been very inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.